The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. If you would uh, take a copy of God's Word in your hands and turn to Romans chapters 9 and 10. Uh, you'll remember, if you've been with us in the course of the month of January so far, sort of where we've been in the, in the book of Romans as we've, we've been doing something of an overview. Uh, the first three chapters address the bad news. They tell us about sin and misery and our need of a Savior. Then chapters 3 and 4, the middle of chapter 3, all of chapter 4, Uh, tell us the good news. They tell us that God has provided righteousness for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ to be received by faith alone. Then chapters 5 through 8, Paul begins to unpack the implications of the gospel. We have peace with God. Uh, We have growing personal holiness in the heart though we are locked in a continual and irreconcilable war with our remaining sin. And God, Romans chapter 8, that we considered Lord's Day evening past, God sends the Holy Spirit into the hearts of His people to sanctify them, to assure them of their adoption, to help them to pray, and to give them the grace of perseverance. And now as we come to chapter 9, we're beginning the uh, next major section of the letter, chapters 9 through 11. We'll consider 9 and 10 tonight, chapter 11, Lord's Day morning, um, before we begin the penultimate section of the letter in chapter 12. But this section, 9 through 11, Paul moves from considering um, the work of God in the life of the individual Christian to consider the work of God on a global scale, really on a cosmic scale. He moves from the saving grace of God in our private lives, as it were, to God's plan to get salvation through faith in Jesus to the ends of the earth, hatched, purposed in eternity, and executed in history as He deploys His servants in the church throughout the world to proclaim good news. Now, these two chapters are really critically important because they bring together two themes that many Christians wish to separate. Uh, Chapter 9 addresses the sovereignty of God in human salvation, that God from before the foundation of the world has ordained to save some out of the mass of fallen humanity, not all but some, and the rest He has purposed to pass by and leave in their sin and deal with justly. God is sovereign in salvation. That's chapter 9. Chapter 10, God sends the gospel 
to all people everywhere so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He requires us to pray for the salvation of sinners and to preach good news to the ends of the earth as the instrument by which people will come to know Jesus. Now, there are some Christians who are jealous to guard the sovereignty of God, and they love chapter 9. They're all about election and predestination, and they sort of skip right over chapter 10. They, they fear, you see, that if God is truly sovereign, then human beings cannot reasonably be called to come to Jesus as though they were actually responsible. If God chooses only some to be saved, then we can't preach Christ freely to everyone and invite everyone to come and believe. And so, we love chapter 9, and we're going to skip right over chapter 10. On the other hand, there are other Christians who are burdened with concern for the salvation of their lost friends and neighbors. They have a passion for global mission. They want to see the gospel preached everywhere, and they feel a certain urgency to bring people to Christ and to share their faith with them. And they likewise are concerned that since the Scriptures command us to go and evangelize all the nations and make disciples of the whole world, then this idea that God would choose to save only some must not be countenanced. The two are incompatible. And both groups, did you notice, both groups share the same fundamental assumption. That assumption is, if God is really sovereign in salvation, then the gospel cannot be preached to everyone with urgency and boldness in the hope that anyone anywhere who wishes may take Christ for their Savior. If God is really sovereign, then we cannot do evangelism. If God is really sovereign, then we cannot uh, engage in global mission. If God is sovereign, it's the end of missionary endeavor. That's the concern that both groups share. The hyper-Calvinists who love chapter 9 and God's sovereignty don't believe in mission. And the Arminians who love chapter 10 and believe in human responsibility and evangelism and mission don't care for God's sovereignty. What I want us to see is that the Apostle Paul holds both the sovereignty of God and the call to mission, reaching all people everywhere with the gospel. He holds them both together, not as, uh, uh, as um, contradictory truths, but as complementary truths. In fact, we're going to see that if you wish to be bold and urgent and confident in God as you share the gospel, as you pray for the lost, you must believe in a truly sovereign God. And so, uh, that's our agenda uh, tonight, chapter 9, God's sovereign salvation, chapter 10, uh, salvation universally offered. Before uh, we read a portion of the passages together, let's pa uh, pause and pray, and then we'll read God's Word. Let's pray. Father, uh, please, as we come to you now, would you help us? 
give us humility and teachability under your word. Save us from arguing with you because there are hard truths here that we may not like. Help us, O God, not to be those who talk back to God, the vessel that says to the potter who made it, why did you make me like this? Instead, would you give us meekness to bow in wonder and grace to adore you that you are the sovereign Lord to whom alone we owe our salvation and our hope. And then as we begin to grasp your sovereignty, to feel its enormity and wonder and awesomeness and tremble before it, before you, would you also call us for our part to join the Apostle Paul in missionary zeal and boldness to pray and to go and to speak a word for Jesus to a dying world. Would you do that now by your word in all our hearts? For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's uh, read Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. We're only going to read a couple of short portions of these two chapters, uh, but I hope uh, that you'll be able to track with me. If you do have a Bible, please make sure you have it open before you, Romans chapter 9 at verse 1. This is God's Word. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. But it is not as though the Word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why did you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Then turn over to chapter 10, reading from verse 9. Chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Amen. And we praise God for his holy words. Let's think about the sovereignty of God in salvation, first of all, in chapter 9. You'll notice Paul begins by reciting Israel's great privileges. You see that in verses 1 through 5? To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Just as an aside, don't skip too quickly over that last phrase, Christ who is God over all. It's an unambiguous statement there in case you're ever in conversation with a Jehovah's Witness at the door or anyone else who claims that the Bible never calls Jesus God. There it is in black and white. Christ, Paul says, who is God over all. Anyway, that's an aside. The bigger point, verses 1 through 4, that the Jewish people possess enormous privileges. Do you see it? They were called God's Son. His glory shone among them in the temple. He made a covenant with them. They possessed His holy law, They had been shown what acceptable worship was to look like and promised the blessings of salvation. Theirs was a noble lineage stretching all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them, the Lord Jesus, Messiah Himself descends, who is God over all. And yet, it's clear that many Jews, for all their privileges, for all their access to God and to His Word and to His worship, they did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The mass 
of the Jewish people living in Paul's day, and sadly in our own day still, remain unconverted, still in their sin, and spiritually lost. And so, what should we make of that? That's the issue that Paul is dealing with. Has the Word of God failed? God sent His Word, revealed His Word to His people, the Jews, and now most of them don't believe. So, has God's Word failed? Has His promise failed? Is the Word of God defective somehow? Well, look how he answers in verse 6 of chapter 9. It is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. We may not conclude that the Word of God has failed simply because many who identify outwardly as the biological descendants of Abraham do not believe in Jesus. No, the Word of God promises salvation, Paul is teaching us, only to those who are spiritual Israel, not merely biological Israel. And not all biological Israelites belong in that category. You see, there is a visible church. All Abraham's biological descendants belonged to it under the old covenant. And all who profess to believe in Jesus together with their children belong to it now in the new covenant. But not everyone who is in the visible church are saved. But there is also an invisible church within the visible church comprised of all who are truly converted, who are born again, who are united to Christ. That was true in the Old Covenant. It's still true now in the New Covenant. And so, verse 8, Paul says, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And then Paul uses the story of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, to illustrate his points. You see that in the text, Paul's use of Jacob and Esau. Both of them, right, both of them are biological descendants of Abraham. So, both are legitimate members of the visible community of God's people, His church, in the Old Covenant as it was then constituted. But look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, God chose Jacob, not Esau, electing the one passing by the other, so that the covenant blessings would come to Jacob and not to Esau. And he did it, notice carefully, based on nothing in either Jacob or in Esau. It was God's unconstrained, unconditional 
choice. They were not yet born and had done nothing either good and bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jacob inherited the blessing, not because of works, not because of anything God foresaw that Jacob would do in the future, but only because of God's free, unconstrained, unconditional, sovereign choice. Now, that immediately raises a new question, a new objection, really. If God's Word hasn't failed, but has been perfectly fulfilled in the lives of the elect people of God alone, His chosen people, as it was always intended to be, well then, isn't God's discriminating election and choice, isn't it inherently unjust and unfair? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Look at Paul's answer in verses 15 through 18. He refers to God's words to Moses and then God's words to Pharaoh. His words to Moses is quoted in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In a profound mystery, God chooses to intervene in mercy to rescue some. Election flows from the mercy of God toward human beings considered as sinners who do not deserve anything except condemnation. But then look at verses 17 and 18 and the word of God to Pharaoh. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Election, predestination, God's choice to save some sinners, flows from pure mercy toward undeserving, wicked, sinful human beings. But instead of mercy, Pharaoh is made the object of divine hardening, divine judgments. Now, there's an, an important asymmetry that we mustn't miss here. God's election, His choice to save, is a choice to intervene in mercy, where we do not deserve any mercy at all. It is a choice to do something, to act, to rescue certain sinners. But God's judicial hardening of hearts takes place upon those who do deserve it. So, for example, if you read the Exodus narrative, the text says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so, when Paul says here that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he's telling us God is treating Pharaoh as his sin deserves. God gave him a hard, the hard heart that his sin and rebellion chose in a similar way uh, as Paul says God does with human beings back in Romans chapter 1, where he hands us over, gives us up to the wickedness and rebellion that we 
choose in chapter 118 and following. Here's, here's the point. The question, remember, is, is God unjust to choose to save only some and not to choose to save everyone? And Paul's answer is, God is not unjust in election because He's electing to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. He's not unjust in passing others by, nor in hardening their rebel hearts, because He's leaving them to the, the just consequences of what their sins do deserve. The wonder, writes John Stott, is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder is that anyone is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in neither case is God unjust. If therefore anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anyone is saved, the credit is God's. If anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. Now, I'll admit the question, why doesn't God choose to save everyone, is a profound mystery. But whatever we make of that imponderable question, the one thing we cannot say is that God is being unjust in treating sinners exactly and precisely as our sins deserve. And then, at His free discretion, electing to show mercy to some by Jesus Christ. Instead of accusing God of injustice, the doctrine of election should humble us to the dust and move us actually to wonder and gratitude that we, that we should be found among wretched sinners whom God has been pleased to draw to Himself. Watts, I think, strikes the right tone. Do you remember what he has us sing while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast? Each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear Your voice and enter while there's room? While thousands make a wretched choice, and rather starve than come. It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had, we had still refused to come and perished in our sin. The question isn't, it really isn't, why doesn't God choose to save everyone? That's not nearly the greatest mystery here. Far, far more mysterious is the question that should strip us of all boasting and make us adore God's mercy. Why should He save anyone at all? So deserving are we only of His condemnation and just judgment. Or even more astonishing, why should He ever choose me? Why should He choose me? Why has He shown me mercy? I only deserve to be cast out into the outer darkness, and instead, I am welcomed to the banquet table of redeeming love.
what? That's a mystery I can't answer. And it puts me, and it should put you, in the dust of humility and make you adore the God of mercy. But the objections to Paul's doctrine have not yet been completely silenced, have they? Look down at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, so far, Paul has been willing patiently to answer sincere questions about a challenging doctrine. But this time, Paul frames the question much less as an expression of honest doctrinal inquiry, somebody merely seeking to understand and much more as an expression of hardened disagreement with the plain teaching of Scripture. And so, he responds. Do you see this? He responds much more sternly. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Moms and dads, there are few things more expressive of disrespect, right? than back chat at home. Isn't that so? Well, Paul says, what makes you think you can dish out that kind of impudent back chat to God as we argue with him about his ways in election? After all, verse 20, will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. The potter has every right to shape the lump uh, of clay that he's working with in whichever fashion he chooses. And the clay has no grounds to object. We are creatures. God is creator. Beware, Paul is saying, lest your rejection of the doctrine of election confuses what is that most basic and vital of all distinctions? You are not in charge. You are the creature. God is the creator. He is in charge all the time. So, do not presume to be wiser than He, and do not answer back to God. But then having rebuked us, you see Paul does go a little further in answering the objection after all, and says in verses 22 and 23 that even in election, God only ever acts in a way consistent with His perfect holy character. He's not being capricious. He's not being arbitrary. He's being consistent with His own character. Look at 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even as whom He has called. Vessels of wrath, that is, objects of divine judicial condemnation, and yet born with long in God's great patience in order to show His wrath and power, to display His character, His attributes. God manifests His wrath and power in the judgment of sinners, and He shows the glory of His grace and His mercy in saving 
vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. God is displaying himself, his character, in the way that he works. And again, notice the asymmetry here in God's actions. The vessels of mercy, we're told, are prepared for destruction. Prepared, I take it, in life. That is, in consequence of their sin and rebellion. Prepared by their sin and rebellion and God's judicial hardening of their hearts. But the vessels of mercy, by contrast, were prepared beforehand for glory, without reference to anything that they do or fail to do. The vessels of wrath are prepared in life for the wrath that will justly befall them for their sin. The vessels of mercy are prepared in eternity past in the electing counsels of God to be the objects of His mercy. And in both cases, God does all that He does to show the godness of God. That's, the big, that's really the big point here. We must let God be God. As mysterious and uncomfortable and awesome as that must necessarily be, for God to be God is going to be uncomfortable for us. I remember once meeting with a man who had been visiting the church here regularly. This was many years ago now. And he came to say how thankful he was for gospel preaching, but also he came quite agitated, upset, anxious to persuade me that the doctrine of election, of predestination, simply cannot be true. And so, we spoke for a little while. I pointed him to multiple Scriptures in the Old and New Testaments that teach unambiguously that God saves sinners based on sovereign electing grace. And as he left, I gave him a couple of books on the subject. And when he returned to give me back uh, the two volumes I'd lent him, he said in frustration, I just can't believe that. My God isn't like that. He would never do that. But here's the rub. It really doesn't matter what your God is like or what He would or would not do. It only matters what the God of Holy Scripture has shown us in His Word He is like and what He says He does and does not do. And a refusal to embrace the truth of God's sovereignty in election, merely because you don't understand it or because you don't much like it, in the end, is to talk back to God. It is to reject the fundamental distinction between the Creator and the creature, and it is to claim the right to stand in judgment over God, who is, after all, the one who stands in judgment over us. Rather than arguing with God over His sovereign ways, we need to begin to see the glory of this great doctrine of election, because in it actually lies all our security. In it lies enormous comfort. In it lies the believer's peace. You see, it teaches us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have, in fact, been loved with an eternal love. You remember Gerhardus Voss's famous line about the love of God. I've quoted it to you many times before. Voss asks, how do you know that God will never stop loving you? 
How do you know God will never stop loving you? And he answers, you know God will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. He has loved you from eternity. He has always loved you. That's the doctrine of election. You are loved because you're loved. And because you're loved, you are saved. Not the other way around. God didn't save you, clean you up a little bit, you know, smarten you up, straighten you out, make you a bit more lovable, and then decide to love you. No, he, he loved you eternally, gave His Son to fulfill the purposes of His love at the cross in your place, sent His Spirit to draw you. No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draw him, to draw you to Christ at the Father's decree. And he did it because he has always loved you. In love, Ephesians 1.4, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Love is the great reason. If we ask, why, why me? The only answer Scripture ever gives is, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's what the doctrine of election is really about. It is God's eternal love fixed upon unlovely, undeserving sinners, determining to make them His children through Jesus Christ. It is the anchor and it is the fountain of your peace and your security. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, paragraph 8, puts it beautifully. Quote, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care, that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Hand, handle this doctrine with special care, right? We don't need to weaponize it to beat Christians with who may differ from us on this point. But we do need to value it and learn to derive from it matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and humility, diligence, and abundant consolation. That is, I think, Paul's great design in Romans chapter 9. There is, of course, one very common, one more very common objection to Paul's teaching here about God's sovereignty in choosing to save some sinners out of the mass of fallen humanity. It goes like this, if only those whom God has chosen to save will ever be saved, well, surely there's no point praying for people. There's no point praying that they would get saved, since only those that God has chosen to be saved ever will be saved. There's no point preaching to people in the hopes that they will get saved in response to the gospel that they hear because all those that God has chosen will be saved, whether we preach and pray or not. 
Doesn't the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation make us fatalists? Doesn't it kill evangelism? Isn't it the death of global mission? Well, if it does kill evangelism, if it is the death of global mission, no one has told the Apostle Paul. You remember his attitude toward his unconverted Jewish kinsman back in chapter 9, verse 1? I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He has this overwhelming burden for the salvation of his unbelieving Jewish neighbors. At the end of chapter 8, do you remember we looked at it Sunday night? At the end of chapter 8, Paul told us wonderfully, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. But he, here he's saying, you know, I could almost wish that were not true. I would be willing to be cut off if it might mean that they could be saved. Now, that's hardly the apathy of a hyper-Calvinist who doesn't care about the unconverted. Or look at chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they might be saved. So, not only is he gripped by this agonizing burden, this desire for their salvation, but he actively prays for them that they would be saved. But wait, wait a minute, Paul. You just said only those that God has chosen to show mercy ever will be saved, so why are you praying? It's all been planned already. Or look down at chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and, saved and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, far from hindering Paul's evangelistic zeal, the doctrine of election seems to inflame it. He's just given us the highest, clearest statement of God's sovereignty and salvation, the doctrine of predestination in chapter 9. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And now he, he blazes. It's like the doctrine of election has struck the match that has set him on fire with longing for the conversion of others. Or look at chapter 10, verse 14. We've just seen election is, in Paul at least, entirely compatible with missionary zeal and with missionary prayer and with the free offer and invitation to anyone anywhere who wishes to come and believe in Jesus and be saved. Now we learn election is compatible, at least in Paul's mind, with preaching. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word 
of Christ. Preaching is the ordinary means by which men and women, boys and girls, will come to believe in Jesus. In fact, Paul has a very high view of the instrumentality of preaching, doesn't he? Look again at verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, that's really not a great translation. What Paul really said is, how then will they call on, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Our translation supplies the word of. How are they to believe in him of whom? they have never heard. But that's not in the original. And you see the difference that it makes. Paul isn't saying merely that if people are to believe in Jesus, they'll need to hear of Him, hear about Him, receive information concerning Him. That's certainly true. Of course it is. You can't believe in a Jesus you know nothing about. But verse 14 is saying something far more weighty and powerful, something I think if you're a Christian, you will yourself have experienced. In the faithful preaching of the Word, you don't merely hear of Christ, you hear Christ. How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes by hearing the Word, the voice of Christ calling us in the gospel, Jesus Himself speaking to our hearts. You hear Him. He is addressing you, dealing with you, exposing your sin, speaking to your heart, calling to you, inviting you to come to Him who are weary and heavy laden and promising you rest. Christ is the real preacher whenever His Word is faithfully proclaimed. That is Paul's electric doctrine of evangelism and mission, and prayer, and preaching. He has the highest view of the instrumental power of the means of grace, doesn't he? He believes God answers prayer. He believes that preaching the gospel is the, the instrument by which Christ will call men and women, boys and girls, to himself. He believes that anyone, anywhere, anytime who believes in Jesus will be saved. He believes all of that and at the same time, he affirms, no one ever will believe in Jesus unless the Father has chosen them in eternity according to the unconditioned purpose of his sovereign will. Far from the doctrine of election killing evangelism, it seems that for the Apostle Paul, election is the basis, it's the platform on which he builds his global missionary efforts. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You might ask, if God is sovereign like this, why pray? It's a common objection. But I would ask, if God is not sovereign, how can you pray? After all, you're praying to a God who, for all we know, cannot accomplish what He desires. He's not sovereign. He's not in control and Therefore, whose promises, in whose promises we cannot ultimately have any real confidence. Your prayers, if God is not sovereign, your prayers are nothing but wishful thinking. If your God does not reign, 
If salvation does not belong to the Lord, then praying to Him to save sinners is a fool's errand. But if salvation is God's work, from election to calling to conversion to final glory, if it's all God's work, then we come to Him in prayer confident that He will surely do all His holy will. And what's more, since God is sovereign, not only the ends, the salvation of the lost, but the means to accomplishing those ends have been predestined and ordained. That means that prayer and preaching and witnessing and sending missionaries and gospel literature and all the proper tools of evangelism and global missions, they're all God's ordained instruments upon the use of which He has suspended the fulfillment of His plan. So that we can never safely say, because God is sovereign, because God has a plan, we can be passive and fail to act. No, she becomes a Christian because God purposes that she would. But she becomes a Christian because God purposes that she would in response to His uh, faithful entreaties and constant witnessing and our constant praying and praying and praying for her and your generous gospel service in Jesus' name toward her. And all those means together, the Spirit of Christ blesses and calls her from death to life, exactly as God has ordained. He purposes not only the end, the salvation of the elect, but the means. The the election of sinners, that's really not our business. We can't inquire into it. We don't ever get to know. Our business is to use the means that God has ordained to go find them by preaching Christ, by praying for sinners to come to know Jesus. That's really, look, it's such good news for me as a preacher. I can't tell you how much lighter the doctrine of election makes my load as I stand to proclaim the gospel every week. Look, I long to see sinners saved. But if the weight of their salvation rests only on their persuasion alone, then it also rests equally heavily on me as a preacher to persuade them and to lead them to decide. And that would put a burden on my shoulders far too great to carry. It would crush me, and it should crush every evangelist who denies the gospel Calvinism of the Bible, who can possibly bear the weight of other people's salvation. I can't even bear the weight of my own. But praise God, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we pray boldly for God to do all His holy will. We pray not just that God would give us opportunities to tell people about Jesus, or that God would make him or her save a bull, We pray, oh God, break into their dead, lifeless, unbelieving rebel hearts. Open their blind eyes, unstopper their deaf ears, cause them to come Lazarus-like out of the tomb at your sovereign summons. Save them. Don't just make them savable. Don't just give me opportunity to speak for you. But as you give me those opportunities, work in their hearts, break through every barrier, overcome all their resistance, show them the loveliness of Christ, win their hearts to Him so that they gladly and freely come running to their Redeemer. 
If anyone wishes, they may have Jesus Christ for their Savior. Jesus invites all people to come to him and believe in him and be saved. We stand to proclaim that message confident that every single one of those that the Father has chosen, for whom the Son died, every single one will answer God's invitation in the gospel, and they will come to Him. And so we stand boldly, because ours, the commission to go into all the world and make disciples, is a commission we know cannot fail because it does not rest on our cleverness, our sophistication, our wit, our creativity. It rests on the sovereign purposes of God who will, who will fulfill all His holy will. We have a God who is sovereign in salvation, and we have a gospel that is to be universally offered to everyone. Those two truths are not contradictory, they are complementary. And holding them together is the Calvinism of Scripture. It's the Calvinism that made the Apostle Paul the greatest uh, missionary evangelist the world has ever seen. And if we can recover a shred of the confidence that Paul had in the sovereign grace of God, what a missionary force we too might yet become. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess to you that there are moments as Christians when we have an opportunity to speak up for Jesus and to witness for him and share the gospel. And we're so overcome by our fears and our nerves and our anxieties, and we clam up because the truth is we think that this all rests on our eloquence, on our brilliance, on our reasoning power. We've got to get it just right. We've got to have the words to say, or who knows what will happen, and we've lost sight of your sovereign purpose. Would you teach us to rest, to rest on your free sovereign grace that chose us in eternity, that called us in time, that made us new creatures in union with Christ, that keeps us that none of us may be lost, that preserves us and governs all things for our eternal good. Help us to rest in your sovereignty for you accomplish all your holy will. You work all things according to your purpose. Help us, please, to find there a great pillow for our heads, resting on your sovereignty, and resting there to be bold in your service, knowing that salvation belongs to the Lord. Send us, please, from this place with something of that urgency that was characteristic of the Apostle Paul, that profound desire and burden to see people converted and to use all the means of your ordination to that glorious end. Use us that many, many more may come to know Christ in this year that lies ahead of us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.